we're then able to start to rewrite the stories. So now when I notice a self-doubt thought pop in, I go, that's not mine. You know, that got passed down from me. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that story. You know, I'm uniquely suited to do this my way. And then I move forward, right? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Mad Happy Podcast, episode 50. Uh, feels crazy to say that. Hell of an accomplishment. Really proud of our whole team and what we've been able to do with this show in the last almost year uh, to be at 50 episodes is is cool. I mean, it's really cool to look back and think that we haven't taken a week off since we launched and just thinking about all the different conversations that we've had and how much we've learned and how much the show has been able to grow you know similarly to how i felt at the five-year anniversary of mad happy last month it's just the beginning still and really does just feel like the tip of the iceberg you know we're about to move into a new studio um, and start to put all these up through video for you guys to watch which is going to be really amazing and just now that uh, the world is a lot more open uh, we're getting to record more in person which always produces really nice conversations and and really allows us to get to know our guests a lot better so 50 in um hopefully a lot more than 50 to come uh really just the beginning but just wanted to take that time at the top of this episode to let you guys know how much we appreciate your support uh whether you're with us from day one with logic or all the way up to episode 50 with jesse or anywhere in the middle uh, we really appreciate it and obviously we wouldn't have been able to get here without you guys so thanks for listening and hope you stay with us on this ride Today, we have a conversation with Jesse Israel, uh, who is a good friend of mine, Payman, Noah's, uh, the brand. We got connected to him through some mutual friends uh, pretty early on in Mad Happy. I want to say like three or four years ago, uh, we became friends with Jesse, was really inspired by his story and everything that he's done in his personal life. Uh, he started a company called The Big Quiet, which is a mass meditation company uh, that really encourages people to get quiet and learn some simple kind of basic guidance meditation practices. Uh, he himself um, was trained in meditation and, and has really taken this concept that he came up with all around the world and some of the coolest venues known to man. So like Madison Square Garden, the Guggenheim Museum, um, places in LA, and even worked his way up to touring with Oprah right before COVID. So really, really cool journey that he's been on and you know, he wasn't into this in high school or college or even out of college. Uh, he was working in the music industry and completely pivoted his life once he realized that he wasn't happy and that it wasn't servicing him. And that even though he was maybe making money and, and was successful, that it wasn't filling his cup in a way that made him feel authentic to himself. So I think anytime we can talk to people who have really taken inventory of, of themselves and their lives and prioritize themselves and their mental health, that that's always a really great conversation and, and really what the show is all about. So we continue to be inspired by Jesse, by the big quiet. Everything that he's doing is obviously super in line with our mission and, and a part of our larger mental health conversation. Last week for Mental Health Awareness Month, we actually did an event with Jesse um, at this location by the beach and did a little meditation um, and discussion with about 50 members of our community. Um, so you guys will see some photos of that on Instagram uh, today, and then we actually end the episode with him taking us through a little guided meditation um, and sharing some of what he shared at our event last week. So we wanted to try and create something for those who couldn't be with us in person to still be able to take away 
some of that experience. Uh, so definitely encourage you guys to check out the rest of his stuff. Um, meditation in general, I think for me is something that I've gone back and forth with a lot. You know, I think there's definitely times in my life where I've been doing it, you know, the 20 minutes twice a day with the mantra, um, and it's really helped me. And then I think there are other times where I haven't really been able to quiet my mind and I haven't been able to find the time. And I really kind of justify why I can't do it or make excuses. And I think it always, it always helps, even if I don't feel like it's helping or if I don't really find myself transcending or having the ability to go deep. I think just finding any time throughout our day to get quiet, whatever that means for you. I think there's no right or wrong way to do it, but whether it's less screen time or a walk or like payment always talks about on the show, right? Is it 10 minutes in our car with no music or no podcast, but just any time during the day that we can really get quiet in our mind and our surroundings. Um, I find that we're just able to gain a new perspective and, and really notice some things that maybe we, we wouldn't have, um, if we just kept up with the speed of our everyday lives. Uh, so definitely encourage you guys to check out meditation, um, in some way too. You know, I think it could really be baby steps. Like you'll see at the end of this episode, we just do it for 30 seconds. And I think we notice little things that change in our body or thoughts that we're having or things like that. So thanks everyone for listening. And the Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism. Please enjoy the show with Jesse. I feel like the the biggest part of your story that's been inspiring to me is really the career change that you made, obviously, that led you to starting The Big Quiet and really this journey that you've been on now. Um, how long has it been? It's been about almost seven years since I've been doing The Big Quiet. June 2015 is, is when we kicked it off. Yeah, so Big Quiet, seven years old, Mad Happy. We just turned five years old, so it's it's kind of close of when we both really started yeah. uh, what we've been working on now and, and really dedicating our lives to. Uh, I was hoping you could kind of just talk a little bit about what you were doing before uh, and what led you to really starting The Big Quiet. I know it was such a big change uh, and a real pivot for you in your life. Yeah, yeah. So I started a little dorm room record label as an experiment, as a classroom experiment um, when I was 20. So I was, I was a sophomore at NYU. And my roommate and I signed this band called MGMT. They had created a song called Kids and they made it in, in their dorm room. Um, and they were playing it at, at frat parties at Wesleyan where they went to school. And my roommate and I had heard about them because my roommate had a cousin who was going over there. So we went and we saw them play and we saw people loving it. But nobody knew about this band or this music outside of the little community of, of Wesleyan. So as 20-year-olds, having no idea what the hell we were doing, we decided we'd create a record label. We signed MGMT and we decided we would, we would work with them to put out their first record. And it worked. By the time we were 23 and we had just graduated, the band blew up. They were a global sensation. And it was really exciting for us to see this little baby project come to life in such a big way. You know, the first time we saw them play, it was like at a dorm room. And then the, the, the uh, couple years later, they're playing 100,000 people at Lollapalooza. So it really was like kind of the the first time I got a sense of, wow, anything is possible, you know, seeing a mm -hmm. bunch of strangers singing lyrics in unison and feeling the connection that came from that. I didn't know it yet, but it was, it was starting to seed the ideas that would, that would turn into the big quiet, but um, it was a really cool ride, but I was 23 and already burnt out, but I had no idea what burnout was. It wasn't something that was talked about. And I would get home from my little studio office at the end of the day. And I look at myself in the mirror and I just, I, I looked I looked ill and I wasn't sleeping. I was getting sick pretty much every week, uh, every month. And 
I just felt really blocked from myself. You know, the social anxiety was really bad. I was blocked sexually. You know, I'd be like dating someone I was really into and I like couldn't get aroused. It was just like there was a lot of internal shit going on and it was confusing because on the outside, we had this sexy record label with like, a you know, a number one band. But on totally. the inside, I was like, what the fuck? And there wasn't there weren't brands like Matt Happy around at the time. You know, there weren't conversations around mental health. This was over 15 years ago. And in the music industry, people definitely weren't talking about mental health in the way that they are today. So my journey of, of working through this was very much an internal journey. And my dad had suggested that I check out meditation because he had been hearing about the benefits. So I, I, um, I went to like a, like a free intro talk at a Buddhist center and it really clicked. It was a very sleepy vibe where I went, very sort of traditional mm -hmm. lineage, donation-based. And I was like, hmm, you know, there's a little moment where I was like, if, if, this, if this felt a little bit more accessible, maybe more people would want to do this. But I was just another little, you know, planted seed. Yep. But it really, really helped me. And, you know, the benefits were really incredible. I'm, I'm happy to get into them. But I, I, overall, what I'll say is that it just it shifted everything that I was experiencing. And I started to feel like me. And I started to feel back in my power. Was that sort of your first mental health experience in, in dealing with that social anxiety and graduating college and having your career just rapidly take off? Um, was that the first time that you kind of were dealing with something that you needed to take a step back and really examine kind of your lifestyle and, and how you were feeling? That's yeah, that was the first time where I was experiencing something significant enough where, where I started to really I started to really question what was up. And it was it was the panic attacks that I that I started having when I was around 23, 24, mm. where I started to look at, all right, I need to make a shift. And that first shift for me was more around bringing meditation in my life. And it wasn't until maybe four or five years later that I wound up transitioning industries. Mm -hmm. But the first, you know, that first key moment was I got to I got to do something about this. I got to find some new ways to take care of myself. Yeah, I feel like that moment is, is so important. And, and I personally believe that that moment happens to everyone like in their life for some people like for me it happened when I was a teenager and when I was really young a mental health became a part of my life and for some people you know it might not hit them until they're 30 40 50 60 even grandparents like might finally deal with it for the first time but I feel like that's really the beauty of not only mental health but everything that we're about and that we're trying to preach is that if you have a brain and 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 you wake up and breathe every day like mental health is a part of your life and whether you're acknowledging them or not we're all feeling things and experiencing things and having moments that that we need to properly process and, and notice and think about and are all having such an effect on our life. Um, and really, before you kind of experience it, I, I know I've talked to a lot of people that it's hard to really see it or it's hard to appreciate it. It's hard to understand it when other people say that they're going through it. And before that, like you were saying, life is really just about, you know, working hard, having fun, making money, going out like doing all kind of these surface level things. But I know for me, I found that those things just didn't fill my cup. You know, even when, when Matt Abbey first really started popping off similar to you, like that's when I was in my darkest place. Like it, our second year anniversary is when I went away to treatment and, and had to get sober in the summer of 2018. So mm. I can really relate to you and your story and just things externally on the surface really taking off, but at the same time, us not taking care of ourselves and, and really nurturing ourselves the way that we need to. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that on your end too, Mace. And I think it's true. I think for so many of us, we don't realize that there's 
action to take to take better care of ourselves until we hit a pretty low point. Yeah. Or until the body starts to say, hey, it's time to pay attention. And that, that's oftentimes what's happening when we're experiencing panic attacks. You know, there's it's it's our body system saying it's it's time to look at some other ways to help move through the world. So for a lot of us, I think we kind of have to reach those moments to get there. Ideally, we're aware of this stuff and we have practices in place that are foundational so it doesn't get to those points. But I know so many of us reach those points and then the journey really begins. Yeah, that's it makes me so sad to hear that. I mean, it's honestly the truth, but it's so sad that that's what it takes is a moment of like rock bottom, losing it all, losing your family, having suicidal ideation uh, like it was for me to really want to make that change. For you, I guess, as as you went to that first practice and kind of planted that seed a little bit, what was the journey like from there of, of really making that big decision to be like, all right, I, I got to stop doing this. And people might say, why the hell would you do that? Like everything is going so well for you right now. <laughs> well, it's interesting because there was about maybe a three or four year period from the time I learned meditation to the time I actually left my record label to start building a career in the biz. And it was those four years that were really critical because when I started practicing meditation and I started to notice these big shifts in myself, I started to bring my practice to whatever I was doing. So if I was at you know Coachella and everybody's running around, there's you know 10 stages blasting music, and I would be feeling those feelings that I would often feel after, you know, it's usually day one or day two at the festival where we just start to feel the overwhelm and the fatigue. And it's those moments where it's really easy to be like, all right, I'm going to go start pounding tequila so I can keep up. Right. And instead, I'd be like, I'm going to roll backstage and I'm going to find a little spot and just meditate and bring some rest into my system and recharge in this other way while there's all this chaos around. And the more I was doing this at festivals, the more I started to notice other music managers, other label execs, even musicians would want to get in on the meditations at festivals while there was Mm. chaos all around us. And there was something really powerful about that experience because we were sharing quiet in like one, you know, one of the most, one of the, like the literal noisiest places you can be. And it was such a relief to do it differently. And what I started to to notice from these little meditation meetups and at festivals is that other people in the music biz were going through all the same stuff that I was going through, but none of us were ever talking about it. And I realized, Ooh, there's an opportunity here to have people who have busy modern lives like myself come together to get quiet and talk about real shit and support each other through it. And I didn't know what it looked like. I had no idea that there could be a business there, but I just really felt called to leaving my record label and starting to give myself to building community and sharing these types of tools and making these spaces. So I didn't know what was next, but I had such a deeply intuitive pull that it was time that I took the leap. I had about six months of savings, which gave me some runway. And I'm aware that not everybody has has access to savings in that way. So I think everybody's transition journey looks different. But for me, I had a little bit of runway so I could take that leap. And once I left, just a lot of magic started to occur because the more I've kind of felt into intuitively what I wanted to give myself to, it felt exciting, the more opportunities started to unfold. And it started with 20-person meditation at my buddy's place with a lot of people from the music biz. And then the next month we did it again and 40 people came and the next month we did it again and 60 people came. And by, you know, the the fourth or fifth month of it, I was like, all right, there's something here that feels like it's, it's, it's my next calling. It's my, it's my now calling. So I decided to just give myself to it without knowing what it was going to look like or how it'd be a business. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, 
I feel like change is so hard for so many people and such a big, scary thing that people are kind of hesitant to. But what I try and talk about is how change really is nature and is such a normal part of life to constantly be changing and evolving and and going on a different path. And obviously life is not linear in any way. Uh, When you think about change and, and just I feel like people hearing your story like you make it sound so easy, right? Of like I was doing this and then and then I switched it up and, and just kind of went on that path. Like what did it really look like for you in terms of like having certain conversations or like your support system at the time or like how did you set yourself up really practically to be successful for this and, and have support and not be alone? Because I feel like that's really so important for people to actually think about, all right, I'm I'm doing something, I'm in school, I don't want to be doing this anymore. Something doesn't feel right. Like what are the actually real steps that I can do and, and, and not be scared to really take that leap, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a great question. So for me, what was kind of unique about my transition was that the experiment that I was running, which was doing monthly group meetups to meditate and talk about real shit, that experiment itself was a place where I was sharing what I was going through. So I was able to be able to meditate and then I go, and, you know, I'm about to turn 30. I just ran, I just left this record label that I I started 10 years ago. It's the only thing I've ever done or known. I'm so identified with being this record label guy. I just left it and I'm terrified. And, Mm. uh, you know, at that period of my life, I was really deep in comparison because I had just left the thing that I was building and I was watching a lot of my friends really, you know, kind of move into the next stage of their careers. And I started to feel really small and I was able to talk about that at these early meetups. And I noticed that by talking about it, it gave other people permission to talk about it too. (laughs) And then I realized the friends that I was comparing myself to who were building these next phases of their businesses, who were at these meetups, were going through the same shit too. And they were like, man, like we wish that we could leave our jobs and explore in a new way like you, Jesse. So I'm like envious of them, they're envious of me, right? We realized everybody's in their heads about stuff. And then once we started to talk it out in community, it was so healing and validating to be like, oh shit, we're all human. And then from that place, we were able to support each other. So it was the essence of having space to talk about this stuff that was built into the DNA of what would become the big quiet. But separately from that, for people who are listening, who are, are, are maybe feeling like they're ready for a transition or what's next after school, the thing that I found to be most valuable was identifying the one or two or three, or maybe the small group of people in my life that I could talk about the feelings with that were coming up. Because when we keep the sit, when we keep the stuff inside and we spend so much of our time on social media, where it seems like everybody's got it figured out and we are internally freaking out because we're not really sure what's next and we're, and we're not really sure how to do it. And we feel like we're not supposed to be, we're supposed to have it figured out by now. When we keep that stuff all internal, it gets really painful. And if we can, if we can identify a couple people, even if just one person that we can go to, to talk about this stuff with it, freeze it. And then in the freeing of it, it allows for creation. It allows for change. It allows for that cycle of nature that you're talking about. Change is constant. New things are always being born. And if we can be in a place where we're accepting of and encouraging change, newness, creation, this is how we can live our most evolved lives. So there's actually so much excitement to be found in transition if we can see it and if we can air the scary stuff. Yeah, I definitely hear a lot of kind of myself and your story. You know, obviously, since we started Mad Happy Mental Health has been so personal to me and and 
really something that's affected me my whole life and continues to. And I feel so lucky to be able to put that into my work and, and what I do for a living. And I know at times it's like really been a roller coaster for me of like, I, I, I shouldn't say that I'm going through a hard time because we have a startup and like we have to work really hard and I don't want to be that like that guy who's struggling again or like, no, now it's okay that I can talk about it because I'm talking to a group of people and, and, and I want to inspire them and, and things like that. And it's been a real challenge for me to kind of keep my business life and personal life separate or together or kind of understanding like where they intersect and like where they kind of separate. Um, how has that experience been like for you of, of as you were sharing what was really going on to these people, but also staying private? Uh, like, was that something that you've struggled with at all? Or like, how do you incorporate your personal life into your work too? Yeah, when when we were first doing these monthly meetups that would later become the Big Quiet, every month I would share something about that was going on in my life to create permission for other people to do the same. And we'd do these little breakout conversations. And I didn't know it at the at the time, but sometimes I would share about something, you know, like in a vulnerable, honest way. And I would notice that it would inspire other people to share honestly and for them to find learnings in their challenge. Other times I would share vulnerably and I would notice that people would just be concerned about me and my own situation. And I realized that wasn't actually adding value to them. That was actually putting more focus on me. Yeah. So I started to realize that when it comes to being vulnerable and when it comes to talking about the deeper stuff or the stuff that we don't usually share on the surface, it's important that we have an understanding of when something's ready to be shared publicly or in the workplace or when something is meant to be private and shared with just a friend or just a therapist or just a family member, right? Mm -hmm. And the system, the system that I've used that's really helped me, and I, I do a lot of leadership, coaching, and mentorship, and the system that I share and that's helped me a lot is share from the scar, not from the wound. So when something challenging, and it's in that wounded phase when we're really still going, going through it, a lot of times that's when the experience is best discussed privately, right? With one-on-ones, therapists, whatever. But once that, that wound, that painful situation has started to scar over and we're able to, and we know it's scarred once we're able to point to the experience and go, I learned this from that. That challenging moment brought me this gift, right? When we're at that mm. place where we can point to the meaningful takeaways, that's when we know that it's scarred. And when it's scarred, we're ready to share it and we're ready to look at the scar and talk about it and also speak to how it helped us become the people that we are. When something's in that scarred place and we share it, I've noticed that it inspires other people to look at their own lives and see how a similar challenge is actually happening for good. This can be done very powerfully in work. This can be done very powerfully in leadership. This can be done powerfully in, in all dynamics of our lives, but it's about understanding, is this ready to be shared publicly or not? No, I love that. I think that's such a great uh, system that you use. And I think we think about it similarly of obviously talking about mental health through the lens of, of optimism and positivity. And even when uh, we have a wound or, or we're going through that time of struggle, like there is a way to really view it through a lens of optimism and gratitude and and all of these things that we can really be grateful for this time or what can we learn from it or once the wound heals and and we do have that scar right there can be such beauty in those scars and i think it's nothing to be kind of afraid of or or shameful of and i think it's just a really beautiful message that we have a scar and and it can really serve as a lesson of we're no longer in pain but 
here's a mark and, and it's a reminder of what we learned. I wanted to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome, uh, just because I know that's something that you've been very vocal about um, and is definitely something that I continue to struggle with a lot. Uh, thinking about both of our journeys, obviously, I dropped out of school and started Mad Happy. You started your label right after school. You know, we're two guys who didn't really, I've never had a job interview. I've never had a resume. <laughs> I don't have a degree, like all of these things that in my mind are like so important to have or make me feel normal or make me feel like I can go function in society and just like boxes that I don't have checked in my head that I think are so important um, have definitely held me back from feeling like I'm smart or feeling like I'm capable. Um, and I often feel like all this stuff kind of just happened, you know, and, and I don't really understand why or I always feel like we got so lucky. Um, and I really struggle with being able to be kind of proud of myself and excited for myself and like being able to realize what I'm doing. Um, and I just wanted kind of your take on that. And I know that you have uh, some experience with it as well. Yeah, I think it's such an important conversation because what, what most people don't realize is that most people experience imposter syndrome, especially as they start to experience success or start to move into a new role. I see it all the time with CEOs and with executives and with people who are you know, in sort of these high powered leadership positions. You see it a lot with talent, with musicians. It's this feeling of it's just a matter of time until somebody figures out that I'm not actually that good at what I do. Or it's just a matter of time until somebody figures out that I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. It's a really common one. And, you know, we, we live in this day and age where it's a confusing time to live in. You know, there's like, there's, it kind of feels like the Wild West in so many ways. And I think that what's really important when it comes to imposter syndrome is for us to celebrate that every, our paths are unique. Everybody's path is unique. It's really easy to feel like we're supposed to do it the way that we see other people do it. And it's so important to remember that we're each uniquely placed on this earth to have a different experience, to share our gifts in different ways, that we're living our lives at different timelines than each other. And this can feel weird when we see people living in a way that we feel like is the way we're supposed to live at. You're supposed to graduate high school and then go to college. And then you have to figure out what your career is and you build a career and you get married, you have kids, you buy a house, you have cars in the garage, right? There's, you retire, you die. There's this set system. And I think what's so important is for us to be able to celebrate our unique timeline, our unique path, and to remember that part of what's so exciting about building something or being in a career or being a leader is that we get to bring our uniqueness to the role. And if we can celebrate that and realize that it's our uniqueness that makes us special in the role, it's less about imposter syndrome. It's less about, am I doing it in the way that other people do it? Or am I qualified to do it in the way that I'm supposed to do it? It's more about, no, this is me being a unique person, doing it my way. Mm. And I'm going to own that. If we can celebrate that and love ourselves for being able to do things our way. There's no imposter. We're just us being ourselves authentically, uniquely. And that's what I, I hope for everybody to be able to see and do. So I think a lot of the imposter thing comes from the comparison tendency that we tend to have when we look at the way that other people operate. Now, for me, man, I've experienced it so many times in my career because I went from being a record label guy to guiding mass meditations and, and talking about wellness. And 
it wasn't like, you know, I left my label, learned meditation, and all of a sudden, all I see is love and light, and I'm in this perfect place. You know, I've, I've had tons of challenges over the past seven years of doing this. I've had anxiety come back up in, in big ways. I've had big blocks of depression. I've experienced burnout three different times. And whenever those periods arise, I'm always like, man, how am I going to be the guy that goes up there and guides 10,000 people in a meditation when I felt like I was going to have a panic attack this morning? It's like, I'm a fake. And then it takes me a minute to go, actually, no, it's because I have those experiences that I understand how powerful this practice is. It's because I have those experiences that I can be relatable to other people that are interested in learning meditation. It's because I have those experiences that I'm extra passionate about sharing this stuff with the world. It's not about me being perfect. It's about me being a human. It's about me being a leader that can take these experiences and use them as ways to move other people up into their power. So I have to catch myself sometimes. And I have to remember that being human is such an important part of the journey. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do anything. And even in just hearing you speak, it's like, I, I, I know everything that you're saying. And it's such a nice reminder, even for myself to just be like, oh yeah, that's true. Like I, I don't have to listen to this negative voice in my head or, or these comparisons or, or like, you know, we're born into a society that already has all these structures and it's so nice to be able to just kind of free your mind and, and break through those barriers and just think in a way of like, this was all just created by somebody. This was all just someone's idea that you need this piece of paper and exactly. that you need exactly. that car and that garage. Like it doesn't mean anything. It's not for anything. And like all of us have our own way of, of doing anything. But while you were talking, I was thinking more about the wounds and the scars thing. And I realized something so amazing about it of, of people think that mental and emotional wounds heal the same way as physical wounds because that's just all kind of we know and it's so much easier to see those and and make sense of it and I'm thinking about my own experience and all of my deeply rooted insecurities and the work that I still do are are wounds from my childhood and wounds from growing up that haven't been healed and that haven't scarred yet and that those I think are really the deepest wounds and are like the hardest ones to really turn into scars and I feel like so many people think that oh those are so long ago, like those are healed up or like, I'm not going to think about those or like all of these things. But really, those are the things that I feel like for everyone that I talk to on this show, or even in my life, like, it always goes back to childhood and family Mm -hmm. of origin and like those sorts of wounds. And I feel like it's so uh, just so interesting to think about the difference of, you know, the physical and the mental. And, And I've said this before on the show, but like one of the things that I like the slogan that I hate the most is time heals all wounds because that's just not true, right? And I feel like to really mm-hmm. heal the wounds, it takes work and it takes conversation and it takes practice and it takes intention. Um, so I just think that's such a cool like distinction and, and a cool way to think about it. I, I love that you point that out because it's so real. It's, it's so easy to think that every, the way that we heal is linear and healing is, ra- healing is rarely linear. And when it comes to emotional challenges or, or maybe stories we tell ourselves. For example, something that's been challenging for me throughout my career has been around self-worth and self-doubt. There's been a lot of self-doubt that I've brought into my work, even though I have all these accolades around meditation and wellness. And it wasn't until an experience that I had last year where I, where I wound up starting to look at 
these concepts of self-doubt, the, the, the constantly telling myself that I'm not actually good at the work that I do, even though I'm aware of the fact that it impacts people and I'm aware of the fact that it's enjoyable and I'm aware of the fact that people tell me they appreciate it and see it in me. It's like, I can't, it's like, I wasn't able to like really take it in and hold it. And I started to look at, I started to ask my parents about it, you know, how has self-doubt shown up in your life? And I started to hear the same stories that I tell myself about me not being capable or me not being actually being good at what I do. I heard my mom talking about it in her way. I heard my dad talking about it his way. My, my parents were talking about how their grandparents, how their parents, my grandparents were dealing with it. And, that, and I'm like, these are stories that have been passed down in our family lineage that I now hold on to. They're just not based in any reality except for probably concepts around how I was raised. And mm -hmm. it's probably just, just, you know, been passed down. And what I've seen, I've seen it with myself and I've seen it with a lot of my peers is that we are fully capable of rewriting these stories. If we're able to bring awareness to it in the way that you just identified, Mace, that a lot of this stuff can come from our childhood or from our, our, our family lineages. And if we're comfortable having those conversations with our, our, our family members, I know not everybody is, but if we're comfortable having those conversations and we can bring that self-awareness to them, we're then able to start to rewrite the stories. So now when I notice a self-doubt thought pop in, I go, that's not mine. You know, that got passed down for me. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that story. You know, I'm uniquely yeah. suited to do this my way. And then I move forward. Right. So I love that you brought that up. I think it's a really important point. No, for sure. I mean, it, to really like the, the times that I've learned the most about myself and, and really unlocked the most has been going back to the source. And like, I always think about myself as a, as a tree. And I think there's a good comparison to the family tree of like, for so long in my life, I was just trying to chop off my branches, right? I was, all right, I'll stop smoking weed. All right, I'll stop texting this girl. All right, I'll, I'll be more faithful, etc. And it wasn't until I went to my roots and really looked at those things of my parents. And, and when I was a kid that I was able to like, make sure those branches didn't grow back, right? It's always kind of beneath the surface in that way. Um, mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about meditation. And I feel like everyone has a uh, kind of preconceived notion about it or like the Buddha sitting on the hill kind of in silence. I know that's been a big part of what you've been able to do is make it so much more accessible, right? We're meditating at Coachella. Who would have ever thought that that was even possible? Uh, how were you thinking about like approaching meditation, making it more appealing to millennials and Gen Z and, and kind of this new age meditation um, where people can just kind of relate to it and, and find it a lot easier? Yeah, it really, it started with me just looking at myself and appreciating that I was able to, when I first started meditating, I was running a record label. I was riding a skateboard every, to meetings everywhere I went. I was partying. I was in a cheeseburger club. I loved tequila. <laughs> you know, I like, there are all these elements of my life that people wouldn't have thought of as someone that meditates. It didn't look like you right. know, air quotes, a wellness lifestyle, but I was doing those things and I was meditating every day and I was organizing, you know, group circles where people could talk about the real shit that they were going through. And these two different worlds, this kind of like maybe world of culture or startup life, or just the way that we kind of think of busy modern living blended with well-being, felt really exciting to me. I was like, that's how I do it. I don't see it really done that way or talked about that way. I want to build this brand around that. 
And I want to build this community around that. And everyone's welcome, but I want to make sure that people really feel included. And I think that what can happen a lot in the wellness space is it can feel trite. You know, it can feel just like athleisure and, you know, perfectly designed homemade salads. And, you know, there's just this kind of green juice and waking up at 6 a.m. with the sun. And there's so much beauty in all those things. And it's just not what it looks like for a lot of people. So when we can bring the two worlds together of culture and well-being, I think it creates more access for people. And this is why when we do big quiets, we're gathering people for mass meditations at, you know, Madison Square Garden, you know, places where, you know, you see like your favorite rappers and where you see, you know, the Knicks play. Um, yeah. We're doing it at the Guggenheim Museum where there's Basquiat on the wall. And, you know, we're meditating around some of the greatest art ever. And we have musicians play at our events where when people open their eyes, you got Miguel, you know, singing a love song set to an orchestra, right? It's like, it's these types of moments where we can bring accessibility of culture and the importance of well-being together that I love. That's what excites me. When, when wellness starts to feel too wellnessy, it doesn't feel like it's for me. And I know a lot of people feel that way too. So um, I've just always leaned into it. And it's true for my team. Our, our, our filter, this, is, this isn't true for all businesses, but for my team, our filter is, is that real for us? Is that something that we would do that we would want to go to that, you know, appeals to us as people? If yes, then we roll with it. Yeah. So that's just kind of been the approach. It's been based off of my values. Yeah. I feel like for a lot of people also, it, it's giving them permission for the, for the and instead of the or of like, you can, right. you can still party and meditate or like, I feel like yep. me, I know personally, I get in the habit of being so black and white and, and like such an extremist in that way of like, I'm either so healthy and, and I'm going to meetings all the time and I'm like not acting out or I'm just like very bad and like in a dark place and, and my room's a mess and I'm not taking care of myself and I'm really trying to allow myself to live in the middle a bit more. And I feel like that mm. that's really what I heard with everything that you're saying of like, we can be many things at once and it doesn't have, we don't have to be so judgmental of like, well, if you meditate, like you better not be doing X, Y, and Z because that's not a true to that. It's like, we can really... Uh, be more kind to ourselves, treat ourselves like people we love in that way and like allow ourselves uh, to be many things, you know? Yeah, that's, I think that's such an important point. And, and the truth is when it comes to meditation and when it comes to, to I think most well-being practices or wellness practices, these practices enhance all the things that we do. So if I meditate before I go to, before I go have a night out where I, you know, where I hit the town, I'm just going to enjoy right. my night of dancing and ripping, you know, <laughs> I yeah. enjoy it that much more. So I just think that wellness can be an expander and enhancer of life, whatever your life looks like. And, and, you know, we can get into this more later. I think that the more that we practice these well-being practices, the more we're able to discern how we can give ourselves to our work and to our lives in ways that actually is of service and contributes to the world. So you know, I think I think it's a blend of those things that to me makes wellness really exciting. Totally. I mean, it's it's completely additive. I think that it's can be scarier on the surface. But I know that me being so vocal about my mental health and, and, and sobriety and going to therapy, you know, it's made me a better it's made me a better boyfriend. It's made me a better partner totally in business. Wrong. It's made me a better person. It's made me a better brother and, and a better son. And I think once people can get over that kind of mental hurdle of it feeling like a 
burden or you have problems or you don't want to like make life harder for these other people um that's all just bullshit that's all that like negative self-talk that that's really holding us back because ultimately if people love you and and they work with you and they care about you like they want you to be the best version of yourself and the more that we can tap Mm -hmm. in and learn about ourselves and 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 pay attention to those wounds or listen to our body and like feel if things are going on like that's how we unlock who we really are and how we really feel and i mean that that it seems silly to uh, to be scared of that or or to feel shame around that that's uh, that's our true selves right it's so true but you know we live in this world that doesn't really model to us how to do this. Right. We don't, there, there's not a lot of leadership or modeling around how to live in the way that you do in the way that you described. So it, it can feel really scary and uncomfortable. And this is why we need leaders like you, like Mad Happy, like I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this podcast to demonstrate these practices to show up vulnerably in those ways to have those conversations to talk about their lived experience even when it's imperfect and messy and it gives other people permission to do it as well and the more that that's happening the more that we can feel human in our process of living the more we feel like we belong the more we feel like we belong the more connection there is the more connection there is the more enjoyable our world is yeah. So, you know, if we're if we're really practicing and embodying living with these practices, then I just really feel like it allows other people to do the same and it ripples. So last week uh, we did a great event uh, together for Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, I know not everyone could make it, but we wanted to kind of offer at least a mini version of, of a similar experience to our listeners here and just anyone who can access this and, and really be a part of not only what we're trying to do around the year, but especially this month, uh, being Mental Health Awareness Month, and and I'm sure you're seeing a lot of brands talk about it and, and companies talk about it. And I feel like the more that we can really uh, converse about it and raise awareness um, and support it, um, the more that we can model ourselves. And, and like you're saying, there's no education around it. So I feel like this is really a great moment where we're talking extra loud and, and we're screaming from the mountaintops and, and uh would appreciate if you could just share a little bit about what we did together last week and then take the people through uh, just a mini version of, of something that they can take with them throughout their day. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the big quiet, not happy came together to celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month. And we we created a, a special experience where we did a little bit of dancing to get people in their bodies. And then uh, we did some breath work. And then we moved into a meditation and I shared a little bit about the experience that I had last year, which I'll speak to briefly. And then we broke out into groups and had uh, conversations around a prompt that I'll also share for people to contemplate. And the way that I'm going to turn that into a shortened experience for us right now on the podcast is I'm just going to share to the story that I gave. I'll speak to, you know, I'll share the story briefly. And then I'll share a short meditation with those prompts built into the meditation so people can bring those into their days or nights or whatever people are experiencing right now. So what we talked about at the event was about self-worth. And the quick version of the story that I shared at this event was talking about how so much of my career and so much of my happiness have been tied together. And what I've noticed is that when I first started guiding meditations and I was doing them in small groups at my buddy's place, I found that I loved the way it felt, but it felt really small. And I was seeing everybody else build these more traditional careers or building families or buying homes. And I was in a different place in my life. 
And even though the thing that I was giving myself to felt exciting and good to me, I was often in my head about it and often felt like I was behind and that I was supposed to be doing more. And I started to notice as the big quiet grew that that feeling would fluctuate. You know, we get press one day from like a, a great publication. They do a big story in the big quiet. Suddenly I'd feel good again. Or, you know, we'd get an invite to do a big quiet, at, you know, under the blue whale at the Museum of Natural History, some legendary place. The tickets would sell out. They'd go on Craigslist at three times the price, you know. And suddenly I would feel worthy, like proud, like I was the man. <laughs> and then things would be slow. Maybe a, an event wouldn't sell that well. Or maybe we just kind of go through a dry spell of not really having that much work come in. And I noticed myself feeling low, sad, back to that place of comparison, back to the stories of behind this. And what's been true for so much of my career has been this sort of this confidence, self-doubt, you know, high self-worth, low self-esteem. It's just this constant roller coastering based on what's going on with my work. And I notice it with, with relationships too. You know, if I was seeing somebody that I was excited about, I'd feel good about myself. If it didn't work out or if I wasn't seeing anybody, I'd question myself, right? So it's just a lot of Jesse's self-worth attached to things outside of Jesse. And then I had the ultimate experience in 2020. The first 10 weeks of 2020, I was invited to go on tour with Oprah. And I'm guiding these meditations in sold out arenas, 15,000 people talking on stage with Oprah about the kind of stuff that we're talking about on this podcast. It was amazing. And it was great to bring this work to people. It was also really great for my ego in that I felt like I'd finally arrived, you know, on tour with Oprah, Oprah's meditation guy. And people would say to me, Jesse, Oprah's got the gold touch, man. You've been touched. Watch what happens next. You know? And I'm thinking about like, Eckhart Tolle, who was sleeping on park benches, and then he meets Oprah, and he's like a you know hundred times you know bestseller. Right. Or Doctor Phil, who was like a low key therapist, and then he works with Oprah, and, and now he you know he's got this huge TV show. So I got all these expectations, and then the week that the tour ends, the pandemic hits, literally the same week. So I go from you know staying at the Ritz every night on this tour to moving back in with my parents, and I'm living in my high school bedroom, and I'm doing the same chores that I had when I was in high school, <laughs> and you know. At first, I was able to appreciate it and be like, man, I'm so grateful. I'm with my family. I'm safe. We're safe. But by the fifth month of that, I was like, wait a second. Where's my Dr. Phil moment? <laughs> Instead, all my work got canceled and so did all my income. And it was crazy to go from this high, high, high to such a big low. And I know so many people went through this too. So as I, I moved out of my parents' place and I was ready to get back on my feet and was... um uh, got my own spot and was like, all right, let's go. I got really sick with mold poisoning. And what was so wild is that the, um, the symptoms of mold are almost identical to the benefits of meditation. So I'm in, you know, back, move back in with my parents' place, giving Zoom talks where I'm talking about wellness and I'm talking about mental clarity and I'm talking about, you know, all the, all, all the things that you might expect with meditation when I'm experiencing violent anger from these mold symptoms. I'm having severe cognitive impairment. So I'm forgetting what I'm talking about. I'm guiding meditations. I'm losing my train of thought. And meanwhile, I'm doing this in my bedroom that I you know, went to high school in, right? So I slipped into this pretty dark place of like, talk about imposter syndrome, right? Talk about self-doubt. It really 
kind of took over for me. And um, I reached this point where I pulled back from work. My relationship ended. I was at this place where my work was still. My relationship, I wasn't seeing anybody still. The two things that I often rely on for happiness or a sense of self-worth were totally quiet. And it was challenging. You know, I hit, a, I hit a low point. I had one of those nights where it's like, man, if I got in bed, I was like, if I don't wake up tomorrow, it'll just be so much easier than trying to figure this out. And I did wake up. And I remember I had this morning where I was looking myself in the mirror and I looked all sick from the mole. And I was like, how am I going to get out of this shit? And it was just this constant negative thought. This, the big quiet's done. My career is done. Like who the fuck's going to want to work with somebody who's sick and has, you know, passed their prime and missed the boat with Oprah, all this shit. And it's just something just kind of woke up in me where I realized so much of that, that year plus almost entirely, I hadn't focused on the good in my world. I hadn't focused on what was special about me. It was, it was so attached to the things that I felt like I wanted outside of me and the things that I saw my friends doing and having. I just lost connection with feeling good about myself and appreciated myself. So I started to practice, you know, it sounds cliche, but I started to practice enthusiastic gratitude for even the smallest things. I started to acknowledge and find the things in myself that I was proud of that made me Jesse. And this thing started to shift. And I started to find this, this access to joy inside of me that, um, wasn't relying on things outside of me and it was liberating and powerful. And I realized, fuck, I needed to go from that Oprah high to that low to have that experience. And you know, what we, what we, what, what I kind of left the group with at our event together last week was my belief is that we all have access to this inner joy and this inner joy. It's an infinite. Well, we think we need things to look a certain way, to have certain things, to have a certain amount of followers, a certain amount of likes, a certain amount, whatever with our career to feel good, but we consistently see that the people that get those things, it's not sustainable. It's not what creates that joy. We have access to inner joy and the way that we can unlock it. We put the the key to unlocking the access to that inner joy is by practicing, praising ourselves, thanking ourselves, loving ourselves, even in the moments where we're crusty and moldy, afraid, uncertain when we can still find ways to love ourselves in those tough moments and allow ourselves to feel whatever we're feeling in the process, we're able to tap into this. So the prompt that we talked about, which I'd love for people to consider, and then we'll meditate for, you know, do a short meditation is um, how is external validation affecting how you feel about yourself? I think this is, you know, we were talking about this at, um, yeah, we're talking about this at a very fancy place. So I think it was very real for a lot of people. How does external validation affect how you feel about yourself? And what can you be doing in your life to love yourself more? And then we broke out and had conversations around this. And it was so cool to hear how real that is for so many people, how reliant we are on what's outside of us to feel good instead of focusing on what we've got and what makes us special as the foundation for feeling good. So... That was my quick version of that story. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move into a short practice. So wherever you are right now, as long as it's safe for you to close your eyes, go ahead and close your eyes. And take a moment just to listen to the sounds that are around you. 
whatever those sounds may be, just stopping to notice them. They're always there. We so rarely stop to notice the sounds in the space that we're in. And now taking a breath in, filling up your lungs and holding and letting it out. And taking another breath in, filling up your belly, the air moving up into your lungs, up into your chest and holding it and releasing it. And one last big breath, belly, chest, up into the shoulders, taking in all the air you can. And once you've reached your full lung capacity, hold it and swallow. Let your shoulders rest. And letting it all out. Now letting your breath return to its natural state. Notice your chest as it gently rises and falls. Notice how your chest almost pulses as you breathe. And then as you're ready, without any rush, begin to slowly open your eyes. In a short practice like this, just three full breaths with holds, and then noticing your chest, it's a great way to bring the body's nervous system back down to a regulated state. You can do that before a meeting, before you go out at night, really whenever you need it, it helps you sleep. So people will play with that tool. Totally. I, I, I usually find myself when I'm driving to work for some reason, get very anxious on my way to work every day. And, and I literally just, I'm, I'm in traffic, I'm stuck on the 10 and I just take three deep breaths like that. And it's crazy to really notice that it slows my heart rate down, that it makes me feel a bit more calm. It grounds me back in reality and just how that's always so available for us. And, and just right there, even, even in that short moment. Yeah, that's it. It can be used anytime, anywhere. Totally. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. I know this this was an amazing conversation for me, and, and I'm excited for us to continue working together and, and everything that you're doing. We'll for sure link it all in the show notes. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, brother. Of course, my man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Episode 50, a big benchmark for us. Uh, so definitely celebrating over here. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks again to Jesse for coming on. Uh, again, happy Mental Health Awareness Month to everyone. Um, really an amazing time where so many people and brands and, and just for the whole conversation and movement as a whole, it's nice to see how many people really care about this and are really showing up for it and creating conversation, providing resources, raising funds. Um, I think one of my biggest takeaways from the episode with Jesse that you just heard was where he said, there's no model for this. There's no one teaching us this to know how to do this stuff. And I think 
what we're about all year round and what this month is about especially is just bringing it up so people know that it's available, that we can learn, that we can educate ourselves, um, that it's all right there to help us. So obviously continued uh, support to get more care and get more access for so many people. And I think that's really one of our largest missions with the foundation and like everything that we hope to do in the future of Mad Happy. Uh, So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. The Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism.